And we are continuing our series, Supernatural Rediscovering Our Spiritual World. Uh, we define reality by what we can see and hear and touch. Um, there is more, though, going on than what we just see. There are spiritual forces at work in our world, and spiritual realities impact our lives. There are things that we cannot see and hear and touch that affect us, and yet we often overlook these things. And in this series, uh, we want to raise our awareness of the spiritual realm. Uh, two weeks ago, we highlighted Ephesians chapter 6, and one of the verses out of Ephesians 6 that we want to keep in front of us says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, last week, Pastor John talked about the devil and how he tempts and opposes and incites and lies, and we see the impact of that every day. Uh, but John reminded us that God is ultimately in control. The devil cannot stop God's plan. In fact, many times the devil plays right into God's plan. This morning, we are going to look at miracles. Um, in the Bible, miracles happen, it seems like, all the time. We expect when we read the Bible to read about God doing something miraculous. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first miracle Jesus performed. It really is a fascinating uh, miracle. Um, in our world, it seems like miracles hardly ever happen. And while we expect to read about miracles in the Bible, we don't expect them in our lives. But we need to remember that in the spiritual forces at work in our world, God is behind the scenes working out all things for our good. Uh, we've asked Bill Hale to read the scripture for this morning. So Bill, if you can make your way on up to the podium as he does, I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able and face the center of the room. Um, we read from the center of the room to remind us that Scripture is to be central in our lives, and we stand because we believe this is the Word of God. And so, Bill, whenever you're ready, please read from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour had not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, filled the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now take some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Bill, thank you very much. You may be seated. Uh, this miracle happens at a wedding where something goes wrong. Imagine that, something going wrong at a wedding, right? Uh, they run out of wine. Uh, something going wrong at a wedding, that seems pretty inevitable. Uh, I always tell engaged couples as they are planning their upcoming wedding, I say, look, there's a really good chance something is gonna go wrong, either at the ceremony or at the reception. And I said, do not, do not let that ruin your wedding day. It's still going to be a great day, even if something goes wrong. Um, it always seems like something goes wrong at a wedding, right? At my wedding, what happened was as I was uh, reciting my vows to Shannon, I was standing here, Shannon's there, you know, this is kind of an important moment when, moment when you are reciting your vows. So I'm trying to focus on um, my bride and the flower girls at that moment who were just kind of behind, they were in this part of my vision here as I'm trying to look here, uh, they decided to start playing with the flower petals. And so what the flower girls started to do is they're throwing them up in the air, put them in their mouths, spitting them out. And as I'm doing my vows, that's all I can see. I'm trying not to, you know, I'm doing one of these things. And I'm pretty sure nobody at the wedding ceremony was paying any attention to what was going on between my bride and I. They were looking at the flower girls. Um, I was doing a wedding a week ago uh, Sunday here, uh, or Saturday, uh, here on campus. And it was a wedding that was planned before COVID hit. And because of COVID, they postponed having a big ceremony, but the couple still wanted to get married. And so we did the wedding just in our Rose Garden area, just right over here. And it was a small, simple ceremony. There was a grand total of seven of us who were a part of it, but it was a beautiful evening. It was a really nice wedding. Uh, after the ceremony, we took a bunch of pictures and then we all got ready to leave. And I went to my office, which is in the other building, uh, just to drop some stuff off. And then I was leaving the side door, which uh, goes into um, our parking lot over there. And while I was doing that, there was a small pickup truck traveling east on pole line here. And unbeknownst to the driver, it was pulling a small trailer. The driver knew that. But unbeknownst to the driver, um, the trailer came unhitched from the truck. And one eyewitness said that they actually saw the trailer starting to pass the truck. Um, and so um, it, was, it was our northwest corner of our property there. And the um, trailer left the road and came across our grass and was flying through our parking lot. It had to be doing 40, 50 miles an hour and it was going right towards the wedding party as they were getting in their cars. Now, when I walked out the door to go into the parking lot, I hear this loud bang crash thing. I look, I see this huge big cloud of dust and I wait for the dust to settle and I see this trailer slowly coming to a stop just by our entrance on the pole line there. What had happened is the trailer, um, the hitch, hit one of the curbs of our islands in the parking lot, took a chunk of the curbing like this size, flew that 15 feet in front of it, and that stopped the momentum of the trailer. Um, 
Now, I'm grateful for a couple of things. One is I'm grateful that the trailer didn't go into oncoming traffic. It would have killed somebody. And I'm also really glad that it hit the curb and didn't get anywhere near the wedding party as they were getting back into their cars. And then a third reason that I was grateful is it gave me a great story to share with you this morning. You know, that's how we think as uh, pastors. But I guess God still does uh, wedding miracles. He still pulls those off. What's the point of miracles? We often ask why we don't see more miracles, but why does Jesus do any miracles at all? And one reason that I want to point out is the reason for miracles is it's a sign. The reason for a miracle is it's a sign. If you still have your Bibles open, just look at verse 11 of John chapter 2 where it says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now look, if you, if you drink, I've heard this a million times as people are drinking, they say, hey look, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. It's kind of hard to argue with. Okay, fine. Um, but if you think about this miracle, turning water into wine, it kind of doesn't fit what we normally think of as miracles. Right? Miracles are usually life and death kinds of things, or a miracle, when we think of that, it's like, well, doesn't somebody get healed in a miracle? You know, giving sight to the blind, or helping the deaf hear, helping the lame walk, raising a child from the dead. You know, those miracles make sense, and they seem noble, and that's usually what we think of when we think of miracles. But turning water into wine at a wedding? Is that really necessary? Do you need a miracle so people can keep drinking? Um, what's that all about? The point of miracles isn't primarily to supernaturally provide for a need. The point of a miracle is to send a message. As it's said in verse 11, it's a sign. And in our everyday lives, we encounter signs all the time, even when we drive, right? We have stop signs and street signs, and speed limit signs, and yield signs, city limit signs, wildlife crossing signs. I once saw a sign that says, no llamas in the park. Don't know what that's about. Um, but signs tell you where you are, where you're headed. They tell you if you're going in the right direction. They confirm that you are doing okay, or they inform you that you're not quite in the right place. The signs send a message. And Jesus, turning water into wine, sends a message. And the message is really in the details of the miracle. There's a lot of details in this story from John chapter 2 that we really don't need. It could simply say, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. And that's really all we need. Um, but those details help us with the meaning of the sign. The miracle happens at a wedding celebration. And Jesus often uses wedding banquets as a metaphor for salvation. Uh, they run out of wine, wine often used in the Bible as a symbol of blessing. And Jesus' mother indirectly asks him to do something about it. And so Jesus instructs the servants to get stone jars of water. And if you look at verse 6, I just want you to see, what are those jars of water normally used for? If you look at verse 6, you see it's used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That's what it's used for. Um, ceremonial washing is something you did to make yourself clean. The ceremonial washing 
is a reminder that we are trying to make ourselves clean. In the place and time of Jesus, the people had all sorts of rituals and ceremonies and behaviors to make themselves clean, to make themselves right before God and with others. Likewise, we do the same thing. We may do it differently, but we do the same thing. How can we make up for the wrong we've done? How can we get ourselves right with God? How can we get ourselves right with others? And the bottom line is we can't, despite our best efforts. And so Jesus turns the water that can't make us clean into wine. And at the Last Supper, Jesus associates wine with his blood And unlike our best efforts, which can't make us clean, the wine representing Jesus' blood is the only way we can be right with God and others. The miracle is a sign. It's a message. And Jesus says, you can't make yourself right before God and others, but I can and I will. But he did have to remind his mother, my hour has not yet come. The Bible tells us that God loves us that God is for us, not against us, that God blesses us even though we don't deserve it. That's what the Bible tells us. But the God of the Bible isn't passive. Jesus hasn't retired. God remains active in our lives. God still does miracles. And every time God does something miraculous for us, it isn't just for the purpose of meeting a need. It's a tangible reminder of God's love and God's grace and God's blessing. The reason for the miracle is it's a sign. It's a message to us from God. I'm with you. I'm looking out for you. I care about you. Going back to the question, why doesn't God do more miracles today? My immediate response to that is, well, what if God does do miracles today all the time and we just don't realize it? And the immediate response would be, I think if God did a miracle, I would know it. And I would simply push back on you and say, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Recognizing a miracle is harder than you think. If you go back to the passage in John 2 and you look at verses 9 and 10, where it says, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though his servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings up the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best tell now. The servants knew where the wine had come from, but the master of the banquet He had no idea what happened, and so he calls the bridegroom and says, hey, you've saved the best till now. And I would assume when he told that to the bridegroom, the bridegroom was saying, thinking to himself, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Save the best wine till now. No, I didn't. The two key people at the wedding, the master of the banquet and the bridegroom, had no idea a miracle had just happened. They were completely clueless. In the middle of a wedding celebration, I would doubt they would even take the time to ask about it. They were just happy that the party was going so well. There's an entire book in the Bible that has miracles that no one recognizes as miracles. Some of you know which book I'm talking about. It's the book of Esther. The book of Esther I call the book of coincidences. 
The book of Esther is about an upcoming holocaust where there's a plan by a gentleman named Haman to exterminate all the Jews in the world. And Esther is a Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia. Persia, the superpower at the time. And her uh, relative Mordecai is a servant of the king of Persia. And so Esther and Mordecai are used to stop the Holocaust. And in the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned once. There is no reference to God, to the Lord, to prayer, to any of that. There are no miracles in the book of Esther. There are a lot of coincidences in the book of Esther. And I encourage you to go and read the story sometime. And here are just some of the coincidences in Esther. Uh, the current queen, her name is Vashti, she's disposed. And then the king has this beauty contest that Esther wins to become queen of Persia. And uh, Mordecai then saves the king's life one time. Um, and then in the middle of all that, Haman launches his plot to destroy the Jews. And Esther finds out about it and she realizes she needs to go to the king and Mordecai tells her, you need to go to the king. But she doesn't want to go to the king because she's not sure the king will see her. And so she risks her life and the king just happens to let her come and talk to him. Um, and then Haman, who's the bad guy in the story, uh, he decides to build these gallows because he hates Mordecai and wants to get rid of Mordecai. And so he builds these gallows and he's going to have Mordecai killed the next day on these gallows. Um, and the same day that he builds the gallows, that evening, the king can't sleep for some reason. Just happens to be the king can't sleep. So the king says, hey, someone come read me something. And they read the records of the time that Mordecai saves the king's life. And the king decides, I need to honor that guy. And just as he's talking about that, that Haman just happens to walk in the room. And the king says, Haman, go honor Mordecai. And so he does that. Um, and then Esther has this banquet with the king and Haman. And she tells the king what Haman is up to. And shortly after she tells the king what Haman is up to, Haman just happens to fall on the couch that she's sitting on, kind of looking like he's trying to attack her. Um, and so the king gets really mad and he hangs Haman on the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. There are all sorts of coincidences in this story. And the whole point of the book is that when God is acting, his actions are often confused as coincidences. They just look like coincidence. Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine went unnoticed by the two people who were most impacted by the miracle. The two people most impacted by the miracle didn't realize the miracle happened. We have a logical explanation for everything. That's how we interpret events of our day. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Logic is a good thing. But we have never been less open to God's acting in our world as an explanation for anything. It has never been harder to recognize God's miracles than it is today. Recognizing a miracle, it's harder than you think. And the biggest reason we don't think miracles happen as often as they really do is because we don't believe in them. We just don't believe it. Our reaction to miracles is always doubt. And this isn't just true for us. 
In the Bible, time after time, God will do a miracle or make a promise to do something, and the reaction is not to believe it. In Genesis, God promised a child to Abraham in his old age, and Abraham and his wife Sarah were well beyond childbearing years. And Abraham does eventually have a child through his servant Hagar, which is good for Abraham, but what about Sarah? And so in Genesis 17, God says, Abraham, you are going to have a child with Sarah. And Sarah hears about this. And in Genesis 18, it says that her reaction to hearing about that was laughter. <laughs> she laughed at it. It was so ridiculous in her mind, she found it funny. Sure, I'm going to have a child in my old age. Well, she does have a son. And the son's name is Isaac. And the name Isaac means he laughs. God always gets the last laugh. In the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go and to perform signs and wonders for him. And Moses does. And the first three signs he gives Pharaoh is he turns a staff into the snake, he turns the water of the Nile into blood, and he, turned, and he fills the land of Egypt with frogs. And to each of these miracles, Pharaoh has the same response. He copies them. He gets his magicians to do the same thing. And so Pharaoh thinks, oh, there's nothing special about these acts. My people can do the same thing. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, and the man is brought to the Pharisees, and they just can't believe the man who's been born blind was healed. And in John chapter 9, you can see that the Pharisees kind of thought it was a trick because they just conclude that there was no way that this man was born blind. And they actually take the time to seek out this man's parents to ask, now was he really born blind or what's going on here? Because they just couldn't believe that it could happen. They were looking for some other explanation, for some logical reason that this happened. It was some kind of trick. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter is in prison. Uh, James, the brother of John, one of the apostles, has already been killed. And the believers are praying for Peter because they think he's the next to die. And while in prison, an angel comes and rescues Peter from prison. And Peter's thought was, his explanation was, he was having some kind of vision. As the chains are being loosened and as the gate of the prison is being opened, Peter doesn't think that he was actually being rescued. He thought it was a vision. And it was not until Peter is safely on the street that he realizes, no, this really happened. It was a miracle. Repeatedly in the Bible, the same reaction to the miracle is that the people doubt it. It doesn't matter if they're a person of faith like Sarah and Peter, or if they are part of the opposition like Pharaoh and the Pharisees. The first reaction to a miracle is to doubt it. And our doubt takes very similar forms. We laugh at miracles. Oh, really, that's for children to believe. Um, we copy them, whether we think certain sports plays are miraculous or there's some kind of medicine that we call a miracle drug. Uh, we might think that miracles are tricks. There's got to be some kind of other explanation. This actually couldn't have been what happened. Or we just think what happened didn't happen. That miracle really didn't happen. Something else happened. The bottom line is miracles will never be proven to you. God's miracles always allow room for doubt. You don't have to believe they happen. Experiencing a miracle requires faith. 
And I just want to give you one example of what I'm talking about. Watch this video of a story about someone from TFRC and something that happened here in Twin Falls. Go ahead and play that video. This fence has not always been here along the canyon trail in front of Elevation 486. Uh, about eight years ago, uh, our office is here on the, on the canyon rim, and I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, bring my daughters and their bikes out one afternoon while I was working. They could ride their bikes on the canyon trail. Uh, our youngest daughter, Chloe, uh, she had just had the training wheels taken off of her bike and was just getting used to riding uh, without the training wheels. There's a little bit of a decline from where we are at to get down to the, the canyon trail, and it's all cemented and smooth, and my daughter started and she was coasting, and because she was uneasy on her bike, she starts gaining more speed than she's comfortable with, and instead of turning to go down the trail, she went straight across the trail towards the canyon rim. And all I hear is her making an uneasy noise because she knows she's headed towards the rim. She doesn't really know what she should do. She doesn't want to turn and skin her knees. And the last thing I see is her going into the sagebrush completely upright on her bike. I was certain she had ridden her bike off, off the rim. She had that much pace. And I was just thinking, just please let this be one of those places where there's another plateau and she's just fallen you know, 15 feet or so, and she's safe down there, and we just need to figure out how to get her pulled back up. I came running down the path to where I last saw Chloe go into the sagebrush, and somehow, miraculously, in a matter of a couple feet, somehow she went from being completely upright on her bike to her bike tipping over, getting hung up on a piece of sagebrush, and she was on top of her bike and that sagebrush was the only thing that prevented her from riding off the canyon rim. So I, I see Chloe on top of this piece of sagebrush and I just say, Chloe, don't move. Just, just don't move. And I reach out and I grab her and, and pick her up and put her back up on the canyon trail. And so it was, in my mind, a, a complete miracle. Never thought in a million years that she would still be hung up up top, hanging by a sagebrush. In my mind, Rick says that it was a miracle that somehow, someway, she, her bike fell in the sagebrush, stopped her momentum, and then it also kept her from falling over, and actually her momentum took her the other way than what it should have taken her. And in his mind, that's a miracle. Was it? You don't have to believe that it was a miracle. What do you think happened? Experiencing a miracle requires faith. Miracles remind us of God's love and grace. So, what miracles do you need to recognize in your life? Things in life, they don't go as planned. Disappointment and discouragement, they are common companions. 
And it's hard to believe in our discouragement and in our disappointment that God is with us or that God cares. But God is always at work in us, performing miracles that seem like coincidences, performing miracles that are just flat out miracles. And we doubt them pretty much every time. It is vital that we recognize them for what they are because they are a sign from God telling us what the Bible tells us, that God loves us, that God is for us, that God blesses us even when we don't deserve it. Miracles remind us of God's love and grace in tangible ways. And so what miracles do you need to recognize in your life? Please pray with me. And Lord, we are just really grateful that you are a living and active God and that you continue to be at work in our lives, in our community, in our world. And Lord, I would ask that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to recognize when you do act in our lives. Lord, when you act in our lives in miraculous ways, give us eyes to see that. And Lord, may those things encourage our hearts as we move forward in faith in you, even in times when we find ourselves discouraged and disappointed. Lord, help us remember, help us recognize how you've been at work in our lives, sometimes in miraculous ways, to encourage us in our times of doubt and disappointment. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.